0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, today we're going to be talking about South Sudan and this is a topic that's been coming up over and over again in the news, just particularly this summer, uh, when in the beginning of the summer, China came out with a very high-profile campaign to raise its profile in South Sudan. The new Chinese ambassador to South Sudan, Mr. Ma Chiang, he uh, held a a number of events and press conferences and met with the international media, which is something that we don't actually see from the Chinese very often. And after what the news we're going to talk about today, he might regret that decision. And once again, we might see the Chinese go back behind the walls of their embassies and not talk to the press. And the reason why we're suggesting that there's a a contradiction here is because way back in... uh, About June of this year, uh, he came out and said that there's going to be uh, an arms embargo uh, on all combatants in South Sudan. Uh, lo and behold, over the course of the summer, well, things didn't quite turn out that way. And a shipment of $38 million of a variety of weapons, mostly small arms, but uh, shoulder fire missiles, uh, some pretty potent stuff, uh, was on its way to South Sudan. So that seemed like a little bit of a contradiction. Now we're getting word this week that uh, China has halted uh, those armed shipments and will, in fact, now not sell weapons to uh, to the Chinese. So before we get to... The 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 Ma Chiang and his kind of quotes from early in the summer. Kobus, were you surprised to see this kind of back and forth uh, in terms of China's weapon sales to South Sudan?
1: I was a little surprised to see the the clear gap in communication between the company that that sold the arms and the actual Chinese government. Um, you know, so frequently they they all present this kind of uh, monolithic front um and it really seemed like in this case they were complete on completely different pages um and you know, which an, an impression which was made, <laughs> which was worsened by the fact that they that then you know, kind of some of them wouldn't, especially the company would then wouldn't wouldn't discuss any of it with the press, um, you know. So so it, it just looked strange, you know, kind of the timing of it looked strange, and also the, you know, kind of the, the them speaking from two different directions looked strange to I me. Mean, did you also have that kind of impression?
0: No, not at all. So uh, it didn't look strange to me at all. And anybody who's <laughs> kind of <laughs> been on the inside of China for even five minutes, will understand very clearly that the right hand and the left hand don't talk to each other. Uh, So, and and again, I think what you brought up was that, you know, there is this perception that China is this monolithic entity, which is this kind of communist, centralized, totalitarian, you know, hyper-efficient type of, uh, of government body where it controls all the levers of its state companies and power and whatnot, which, again, anybody who's been inside of China for five minutes knows that ain't the way it works. Um, so there's a company that's a very important company to understand in terms of the global arms trade. It's China North Industries Group Corporation. You won't, you'll never hear of it, no, as as that. It's known as Norinco. And Norinco is a key, key player in the global uh, arms business, particularly in the small arms business. But they're also getting into tanks and drones and whatnot. Uh, But they were known for AK-47s and handguns and landmines and things like that. So they, although they are state-owned company, they don't necessarily coordinate, communicate, and cooperate with, with with the government. Now, that shouldn't come as any real surprise because what we've got, you know, you know arms traders in in the U.S. arms traders in France in the U.K. Uh, that have very deep relationships with the government, but yet have their own agendas as well. And so, in some ways, I think we should just look at the Chinese in the same way that we would look at you know your own country, Cobas, who is in fact I think in the top <laughs> yes. three weapons vendors in Africa, um, yes. and who has been known to sell you know very lethal weapons to not very savory people, uh, and probably Mm -hmm. going counter to South African policy as well. Uh, So I think in some ways it's part of that kind of just ugly, messy picture that is the global arms trade.
1: So do you think this was a case where the, where the communication just wasn't coordinated? Um, where they were, or, or was it also a situation where, was the, 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 the fact that there is going to be, or that, that there is an arms embargo, you know, kind of, if you take the ambassador's word that there was an arms embargo already, you know, kind of by, by June, July, was that fact somehow not communicated or was Narenko ignoring that fact? Like, how, how should we interpret that?
0: Okay, let's do the, the kind of optimistic you know, positive way of looking at it, which was, yes, the memos didn't get through. Uh, You know, these are vast bureaucracies that don't necessarily watch Al Jazeera and pay attention to these kinds of things. You know, what the decisions are made, you know, 6,000 miles away in Beijing. They're done through covert channels with the South Sudanese government, which aren't necessarily talking to the more public channels of Chinese public diplomacy. Okay, that is the kind of, you know, We'll call that the positive scenario. The more cynical scenario, and this is the one that I think it is, is that Norinco doesn't really give a crap what the politicians say. They're out there to sell, and they're out there to make money. And frankly, I don't think they're any different than you know any of the uh, the global arms companies out there. Yeah, so the politicians are saying X, they're still going to sell well, you know, arms to Y. They just got busted this time. And frankly, they didn't expect that it would kind of blow up. Do you remember a couple of years ago, this happened with Zimbabwe, where there was a big yeah. ship— loaded with Chinese arms, you know, heading, steaming off the coast of, of, uh, uh, of Africa towards Zimbabwe and it got stopped before it even made it to Zimbabwe. And and I think in some ways yeah, they what didn't. What eventually uh,
1: apparently happened was that South African and Mozambican dock workers refused to unload that ship. Ah, um, so apparently it, it, it eventually got unloaded in Angola, and then and then kind of like took uh, was was the weapons were taken overland to Zimbabwe. That's the story that I heard.
0: Now what China came out in that case and said is, listen, Zimbabwe is a legitimate you know partner of, of China. We're selling you know legitimate weapons. This is nothing illicit. Uh, this is you know, and there's every Everything's above board. Lots of countries sell, sell weapons, and frankly, the West has no moral ground whatsoever to talk about uh, condemning the Chinese for selling weapons into Africa. Um, you know, it's just—I mean, I, I just pull what little hair I have left out of my head when I see the kind of morality, the you know, coming out because the, web, the, the, you know, the West has made billions of dollars selling these guns and, and, and weapons into into Africa. So. Um, I, I take the more cynical approach. I think Norinco was out there to make a buck. They they got busted. It made the Chinese uh, policymakers look bad. And here we're seeing the fruits of that. So the timing is something that I'd like to get your impression about, because this to me is very, very interesting. The announcement today comes three months after Ma Chang said uh, they're going to respect an arms embargo. They're not going to sell weapons to the South Sudanese government. But at the same time, this announcement today or this week comes out, you know, just two or three weeks after Beijing announced that it's going to send uh, at least 800 uh, armed combatant troops as part of United Nations multinational force to protect uh, oil installations and to be part of the peacekeeping operations in South Sudan. And I wonder if these two messages are connected in any way that they're sending in peacekeepers to kind of bring stability and they also don't want to be accused of fomenting that that instability by selling 38 million dollars of weapons what's your thoughts on the timing of everything
1: yes i mean i suppose the issue is is whether the the you know what? What peacekeeping really constitutes in this in this case? Does peacekeeping essentially constitute essentially strengthening the hand of the South Sudanese government against the rebels? Um, in which case, you could see that peacekeeping um, and the the arms import could actually work together because obviously the arms are being sold, you know, kind of to the government against the rebels. So, I mean, that that's one way to look at it. The other thing is, is other ways is simply to to try and lessen conflict. And I can well imagine that. If the, you know, if you're sending peacekeepers, then you don't want to be also seen to be, you know, kind of selling arms. Um, the, the 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 timing is is also confuses me in a different kind of way. In the sense that, as, as you mentioned, the ambassador already in July, you know, kind of was quoted saying, saying that the arms embargo is already, has already has already been decided. But Bloomberg um, reported that the U.S. special envoy for Sudan South Sudan, um, Donald Booth, Ray said that raised the issue about arms imports to the Chinese also in July. So it's so weird that he was raising the issue where, you know, kind of while an embargo had apparently already been decided by then. Um, so that's weird. And then, I mean, the other the other timing issues of course, you know, or maybe more a press and, and messaging issue is the role of, of players like Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch you know, kind of who, who started really campaigning very hard about this issue. So the, the overlap between the US government and, and, and international NGOs Clearly, I mean, you know, kind of, they seem to be. The Chinese government seems to be listening to that kind of bad publicity. I
0: guess. Yeah, but I don't think the the Chinese give one you know crap about what and amnesty says i mean they don't this is a that's a constituency that they couldn't care less about frankly i mean they've But made, i mean
1: isn't isn't the isn't the weight of the of the bad press doesn't that kind of sometimes kick them into action i don't you know, know. The I, don't, the bad I don't press around darfur that as well
0: well yes and no but darfur was a very good example you know everybody talked about a boycott everybody talked about condemning the chinese and the chinese seem rather thick skinned when it comes to this type of criticism uh, this goes way back for for decades that the Chinese have uh, have developed a tolerance for for, for sharp criticism, whether over Tibet, Taiwan, now Xinjiang, uh, human rights. You know, they just take it from all sides. I don't think that's what moves the Chinese. The Chinese are very pragmatic. I think they're behaving out of uh, out of their own self interest in in South Sudan. This is a real politic type of environment, in my view. Henry Kissinger would be very very proud of what the Chinese are doing. Uh, that said. Um, You know, this is also I I think let's not, you know, assign conspiracy when mediocrity will do just fine. (laughs) So and what I think is this is a very volatile situation in South Sudan. You have a lot of stakeholders. You've got, as you pointed out, the international NGOs, you've got the major powers, the Russians and the Americans are involved in this. Uh, This is really one of the first times that the Chinese have stepped out as a major international diplomatic actor here as well. Um, And at the the last part of this, and this is what I think is most interesting, and this is why I'd like to get somebody like Ross Anthony on back from the Stellenbosch uh, Center for Chinese Studies who understands domestic Chinese politics and the concept of the non-interference doctrine. The non-interference doctrine goes way back to the uh, late 60s, and this comes out of the Mao era from Zhou Enlai, who was then uh, Mao's kind of foreign policy guru for China for the most part. He had a lot of roles, but he, he, he came up with this concept of the non-interference doctrine. And what it says is that China will not interfere in the internal affairs of other countries. And what made me furious this summer was when I saw that the Chinese were sending these $38 million of weapons to support one side in a civil conflict that to me shows the non-interference doctrine being completely trashed and china can't with a straight face say that they're not interfering in the internal affairs of another country now again when we say china who is china here is it the government or is it narinco acting on its own self-interest we don't know but at the end of the day you know china as an entity as a country is in fact interfering in the internal affairs of other countries when it does weapons deals like this?
1: Yes, I mean, it, but it's it also when you know, kind of when it sends peacekeepers. Um, and and yeah, you know, for yeah, example, but, but it, that's not know, an interference, though. That's a conspiracy. UN, but that's a
0: UN-mandated multinational type of thing. Do you see what I'm saying? That's not a unilateral intervention. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yes. No, that's true. That's yeah. Um, so going back to the realpolitik aspect of this, what, what do you you kind of just reading the tea leaves like? What would the realpolitik kind of thinking be behind between in the first place behind, you know, kind of really kind of making making a big deal of the arms embargo now. Right after one, one, you know, kind of one bit of the, or one, one section of, of that order has just been delivered, um, so, one, so a certain amount of that, that arms did actually get through, um, and now the rest of it is going to be blocked. So, so you know, kind of, was that simply trying to run after the train and catch up no. um, in a kind of a realpolitik way, or was there other kind of thinking behind it?
0: Let me provide, uh, you know, a whole bunch of completely uninformed speculation. <laughs> Okay. I mean, I have no idea. And frankly, I don't believe anybody does. But, you know, someone like Kai Xue up in Beijing might have an idea. But uh, let's, let's kind of paint the picture of what Beijing looks like. Beijing is like any other global capital now. And the, the political establishment sur- is surrounded by special interests and lobby groups. And among the most powerful lobby groups in Beijing is the oil industry. And that's not a surprising thing. That's one of the most powerful lobby groups on K Street in Washington. Certainly in Paris, it's, it's a very powerful lobby. So what I suspect is happening here is that what we may have seen is the kind of the, the the playing out of different special interests in Beijing, the lobbies for the oil industry versus for the weapons industry. And frankly, I think the, the the fact that part of the mandate of the 800 UN peacekeepers was to protect Chinese oil installations or oil installations, but they're all Chinese there for the most part. So by de facto, de facto, they're Chinese. And that to me was very interesting. So I think that this is an oil-driven policy here. And there was an article that came out this summer that basically said, you know, Welcome to the club, China. You're now an imperial country. You know when you're sending out all you know armed soldiers to protect oil installations. Well, that kind of takes the fig leaf off of of what it is. And so, so I suspect that what's happening in Beijing, as I said, totally uninformed speculation here. So full disclosures that. that this was, uh, this was a lobbying effort and uh, that the oil industry, which is very powerful, China National Petroleum Corporation has invested billions of dollars into South Sudan. It does not want to see that investment be flushed down the toilet. And what it's doing is protecting that investment.
1: Yes, I mean, uh, you know, cause that, that, that makes sense to me. Um, it's, it's interesting to think about you know, the kind of moral complexities of the situation from the position of, of South Sudan, because, of course, oil is essentially South Sudan's only industry. Um, so in a weird way, you know, kind of on the one hand, China it has become this kind of imperial power, um, on, in uh, you know, on, on the other hand, like by protecting the oil industry and, and not kind of setting it back by like five years because of because of you know kind of damage by by fighting because of fighting, it is in a way saving South Sudanese lives in the future, in the sense that you know kind of once once this kind of war has has run its course. The the economy can kind of get back on track, you know. Um, in in any other country, that could probably make any sense. But in the case of South Sudan, where there were almost ninety percent of the economy completely depends on this one industry, you know, in a way, it it probably it is probably is helping people. Not now, but maybe in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's going to be a hard argument to sell, only because <laughs> how much of both Sudan and South Sudan is awash in Chinese weapons. Uh, China has yeah. not necessarily been a constructive player in terms of mounting international sanctions against the Sudanese. Uh, you know the the moral side of this again coming back to this non interference and non intervention. Yes. Is tough because you know China yeah, is. Yeah, I mean,
1: what do I just? To, sorry to interrupt. Just just to clarify, what I you know kind of what I was actually mostly talking about more about things like the the, like the peacekeepers protecting the oil installations rather than the arms. Yeah, you know, because no, I think fair. the arms deal is just a disaster. But yeah. yeah, that's fair. I mean, you know, it's it's again as an American,
0: and and I get very frustrated when I see Americans or Westerners in general, kind of get on their high and mighty moral horse because, well, frankly, our history is littered with this same thing. That doesn't necessarily justify or excuse the Chinese for what they're doing, but I also think that we have to look at this in a context, that poor people with lots of natural resources and dictatorships oftentimes buy illicit weapons, and they'll buy them from anybody who will sell them. And, and most likely, there are people all over the world, from your country to mine, who will sell it to them without any morals, you know, I think you are kind. selling it to
1: them at the who moment. are selling case. it
0: to them. And again, it's very important to remember that although China... Is a major weapons uh, vendor in Africa, and in particular, they're the worst kind of weapons vendor because it's the small arms, it's the landmines, it's these kinds that have a very intimate type of connection with people. You have to pull that trigger to kill another person. Um, whereas wow. the Americans, what they're selling for the most part are these very high high value types of weapons. You know, so you know F-15s to the Egyptian military, and that's what puts the Americans at a very high dollar value. But at the same time, you don't see. American weapons on the streets of Liberia for the most part. That's now a Russian and Chinese thing. So, um, you know, this is a complicated thing. South Sudan, to me, is one of the most interesting areas to watch for for China, in part because they are, they've invested an enormous amount of diplomatic political capital. And I guess in some ways, and this is the last point that I'd like to get from you, is, you know, Mr. Africa himself, Zhong Jianhua, who is the special advisor to the Chinese government on Africa, He is basically their top diplomat on Africa. He himself is personally overseeing the South Sudanese uh, peace process for the Chinese. And so I wonder if in some ways, too, that they want to bring stability to South Sudan in order to start establishing their credentials as a legitimate global diplomatic player, the same way that they're deploying their military to quite great effect, actually, off the coast of Somalia and participating in the anti-piracy operations uh, there, and that 's brought them some credibility, so I wonder what your point, what your point of view is in terms of the political capital
1: investment that they 've made i think they 're in a difficult position because they 've invested themselves financially obviously but politically very heavily in a, in a situation where it seems it 's not both the government and the rebels are very happy to essentially burn down their own house while they're still living in it. You know, um, they they seem to have very little kind of even concern about you know kind of about the situation they themselves are creating. Um, so this Bloomberg article, um, which was which which was appear, appeared this week, is by by Ilya um, Gridnev, um Ends with with the <laughs> very eloquently, I thought, by with with a spokesperson for the the Sudanese government calling calling for on the rebels to surrender, and then um, and then saying at the end we hope that peace comes, and that is that is the hope of all of South Sudan. He then laughed and ended the interview, quote unquote. You know, mm. so it's like I mean these are not nice people. No, you know, to isn't. say it very very kind of simple-mindedly. I mean they they you know kind of this is almost like a, almost a gangster state, um, very very unstable. You know kind of the 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 the, the, the South Sudanese voters are incredibly disempowered. So, if you're going to be choosing uh you know some uh, a foreign policy situation in which to mediate and essentially to stake your whole political reputation that you know the the uh, something to to risk your entire non-interference policy on like they're essentially doing this is maybe not such a such a sure thing um yeah, but, you know but so, bear in mind mean, that, they've kind of painted themselves into a corner they have but
0: but again and i i don't mean to excuse or justify anything that the chinese done have done because that's not i i don't a, they don't need it, but B, that's not my thing. Um, but this is new for the Chinese. Um, this is, a, 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 you know, again, being a global mediator in an international conflict is something that they haven't done before. Um, they've never been known to be that kind of power. So I think they're also stumbling their way through some of these conflicts. This is still an early stage of China's international relations development. So I think we should afford them a few mistakes because they are new to this game. Uh, you know, there's always this pressure on the Chinese from the West, from the United States in particular, to be a more responsible stakeholder in the international system. Well, this is what it looks like, but it's not always smooth sailing. And so what we may be seeing here, again, pure uninformed speculation, is them just figuring it out and making mistakes along the way and not coordinating their policy structure internally in Beijing or on the ground in Juba. So that might – all these things might be it. At the end of the day, we don't know. Uh, the article, as uh, as Kobus pointed out, uh, is China halts arms sales to South Sudan after Norinco shipment. Came out on September 30th. Uh, excellent overview. Uh, you know, you th- I thought it was just going to be a spot news article, but it actually went quite long and give, gave a lot of – comprehensive background on the Chinese in South Sudan, and the complexity and the hellhole that COVID says it is, which is true, that it's, a, it's really just a, it seems like they're in an awful situation and one's heart goes out to the people who are suffering there because the fighting doesn't seem to be anywhere close to being done. Uh, and now, again, with $38 million of new weapons, they're probably going to Pick it up, you know, a little bit sooner. So, on that depressing, depressing note, Kobus, we really kind of hit rock bottom on this show. <laughs> uh, you know, where can people complain to you about uh, how depressing we are today? <laughs>
1: <laughs> They'll see me on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesq. with so S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E.
0: And South Sudan is one of the major topics that we cover regularly on our Facebook page. We're now at almost a quarter of a million followers from all over the world holding daily discussions on the Chinese in Africa from all sides of it. Pro, con, Chinese side, African side, U.S. side, all of it comes together on our Facebook. Facebook.com slash China africa project hope you can join us there also i'm on twitter as well over at eolander e-o-l-a-n-d-e-r and if you'd like to listen to this podcast the best way to do it is to find us over on itunes just look for china africa project and if you're there we would be so grateful if you could maybe give us a rating or give us a comment that would be fantastic Uh, also we want to give a shout out to the folks over at china file that's c-h-i-n-a-f-i-l-e.com uh, probably the best China-related website for news analysis, and uh, they've been so great, uh, gracious to let us kind of park our podcast there. So uh, you can find us there as well, and we give a, a warm welcome to all our new listeners from the China File community. So until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.